Hi, it's Paul. I just want to let you know that we recorded this episode before the coronavirus pandemic hit the United States. So in this episode, we don't mention coronavirus or COVID-19 even once. We thought that might be nice for a change, so we are releasing this episode this week. Given that uh, Verizon says that video game use has increased by 75% during the shutdown, it seems like a good time to think about how video games are made and what that labor looks like. Enjoy and have a great weekend. Hey, I'm Stephen Paolini. I'm the program director for Civic Action, which is the online digital advocacy platform for Civic Ventures. And I'm Paul Constant. I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. Today's episode is about economics in the gaming industry. And I am personally super stoked uh, to talk about this because I am an avid gamer and I just love this conversation. Actually, before I got into politics, I played video games semi-professionally in high school and college and thought sort of very strongly about going into that actually as a career. I am not a gamer. Uh, I, I played a Mario many years ago, and uh, I like a Pac-Man. I've always been interested in the gaming industry because it is such a huge part of the lives of people. I was going to say young people, but really everyone. People who are my age, people who are younger like Steven, and it's just like this fascinating alternative entertainment industry that I'm I'm aware of, but I, I don't participate in. So I, I have kind of a unique uh, perspective on it, but I'm really excited by how excited Stephen is <laughs> by it. And this episode is, is super interesting to me because I write comic books in my spare time. And as an interviewer, I talk with a lot of writers and about uh, things like compensation and a lot of people don't think about the money behind the industries that they enjoy. And Paul, actually, one of the reasons you should care, even though you don't play uh, video games a lot, is this is a massive industry. Last year's revenues were $134.9 billion. And in contrast to most entertainment industries that are like that, there's actually very weak labor standards and almost no unionization at all. There are over 220,000 employees just in the United States alone. And... 15% of them, a full 15% of them, are actually contract workers. The gaming industry at large is actually this kind of trickle-downer's paradise. There are rampant abuses of overtime, wage suppression, constant harassment and discrimination and toxic environment claims, and abuse of misclassification of workers as contractors. I think one of the reasons that's the case is that the sort of trajectory of the gaming industry sort of growing up from infancy into this massive multi-billion dollar industry happened right along at the same time as this era of neoliberalism and deregulation of our economy. And so it, it is sort of rising up at the same time as the trickle-down narrative of uh, wage suppression, tax cuts, and deregulation is taking hold. So for such a lucrative industry tied as it is with other entertainment industries that have you know, unionization and and good pay. The question is, why does gaming have so few labor regulations that other uh, sort of interrelated industries do? I think the answer to that is, as an industry, gaming has sort of grown up in the era of neoliberalism, where new regulations or, or more stringent regulations and standards are frowned upon by industry because they're seen as getting in the way of profits and growth. Of course, that's not the way that it works, but there's kind of a, a libertarian Silicon Valley sort of vibe in the gaming industry that you don't see with movies which have been unionized since the 30s and 40s, I believe. Yeah, I think the contrast here that's really interesting is 
there are sort of two paths and gaming as an industry is sort of relatively new. It's sort of still in its adolescence and it can go the path of the film industry in investing in the human and labor capital that makes movies such great products. And it can then become sort of like the film industry, one of the most dominant and reliably consistent profitable industries on the planet, or it can go the way of deregulation and trickle-down economics and become like the pre-2008 housing industry. And I think that's where we're at in this moment. And I'm so stoked to have the conversation with folks that are both in the industry and on the forefront of leading the unionizing efforts for that reason. And just personally, as somebody who has consumed video games their entire life, and as somebody who cares deeply about these products, I also have to reckon with myself, do I care about how they're made? And do I care about the people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into making the things that have become such a huge part of my identity? And one of those people is our guest, Jennifer Hale. She is the most prolific voice actor of all time in the gaming industry and a personal hero of mine who has over 407 just acting credits on IMDb. So I am so stoked to talk to her. This is Jennifer Hale, Master of the Universe. Um, nice to be here. I am a massive fan of yours. Uh, I've been playing. Oh no way! <laughs> oh. I've been playing video games my entire life, and I was looking over your filmography uh, in getting ready for this podcast recording, and it was like a trip down my childhood. I mean, every one of these awesome games and these awesome characters I grew up with. You were the voice actor behind. The first one for me was back in 2007. You were uh, Bastila in Knights of the Old Republic, which is to this day one of my favorite (laughs) games of all time. So I have to get that out of the way because you are like a hero to me. Oh, my God. Well, I'm so grateful that you that you like the work. Thank you so much. Well, I'm a fan of what you guys do. Huge fan (laughs) of what you guys are doing. Well, well, thanks so much. I read Nick's article. The pitchforks are coming. I think it was, I want to say August 2014, sometime around then, whenever it came out. And I was like, yes, what he said, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. So let's start here, uh, which is that, you know, video games as an industry has been exploding over the last 10 years, but most people sort of consuming it or even sort of tangentially consuming it don't really understand the process of, of how it gets made. So could you just sort of describe like, what's your role in, in making the game? What's that day to day like? I was going to say, I can speak to that because I can tell you that the people I work for are exhausted and work a bazillion hours and are unbelievable in what they can pull off. My piece of the equation takes place both in games and then far away on the sidelines, you know, to to get ready to do what we do. Voice actors spend an enormous amount of time learning and training, and there's all kinds of levels to learn. Like, you've got to be an actor first. Um, you've got to know how to do that in a way that's engaging and will engage people on a kind of a, you know, a cellular level, if you will. And so you're training yourself as an actor. You're also marketing yourself as an actor and doing all that stuff just to get to the point where you could get the job. Let's say you get called. First thing you get called is you get the audition and you're sent sides, which is what we call them. And you frequently used to be you'd go into the agent's office and you'd get directed by a booth director or you'd get called to a casting director's office and someone would give you some contacts. And they'd kind of help you understand the bigger picture. Nowadays, you get emailed the script to your inbox and you record at home much of the time on your own. And you send it in pretty blind. So that's the first step is just just getting that accomplished. And then you get cast 
and you um, you show up on the day and you walk in and it's it's cold reading. But a lot of the time we don't even know what the job actually is. They call it, you know, Project Pineapple, you know, Project Peanut, you know, whatever. They'll just have a name and code name for it. And you could be in the next installment of the biggest grossing game of all time, but you don't know that. And up until recently, your agent didn't know that either for negotiating purposes. So you go into the job and when you're really lucky, the writer's there with the director and the voice director and anybody else from the team, producers maybe, and they'll give you a wonderful takedown on the story arc. So you kind of get a sense of what's happening. And then you start recording, but much of the time you're recording out of sequence. You're like, oh, okay. You know, you're recording the part where you just punch them out, but you haven't even met them yet. What I'm trying to understand, I guess, is the differences in the industries. And, you know, film Mm. is an industry where everyone from, you know, the voice actor to the screenwriter to the director and the producer and the lighting, you know, folks are all unionized and are all heavily involved in the project. And, and video games, you're probably one of the only people <laughs> involved in the making of the games on most of these projects that, that's unionized. And I just want to try to understand the conditions and, and sort of what it's like uh, to the extent that, that you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there are people out there who are very much on the ground floor of this process. And I will say this fight to make the playing field a healthier, better place to exist. They know a lot more than I do about this, but I will speak to what I do know, which is, um, you know, it's a national industry. And anytime you've got something new going on, it's the wild west and that's exciting and it's fun and it's crazy and it's insane. And I've done sessions that were supposed to be four that ended up being nine and a half hours, you know, way back in the beginning, we just kept going and then people didn't realize they had to pay for that. <laughs> and we had to sort of fight for that. And it was communicated, but it wasn't really heard, you know. And I'm, I'm lucky that way. But anytime you've got a baby industry like this, to me, it brings out all forms of, I'll call it human nature. It's corporate nature. You've got those corporate spirits that are saying, hey, this is great. We need to, everybody help make this happen. Let's take care of everybody so we can keep going further, farther, better. And then you've got those spirits going, mine, I started this thing, so it's mine. You know, you've got basically the sustainable versus the unsustainable model. And right now, I think there's a battle in the gaming industry for which, which heart is going to win, the sustainable one or the unsustainable one. Right now, there's a lot of the industry eating its young. There's a lot of the industry burning people up uh, because they don't let them eat. They reward this self-sacrificing behavior, which initially comes from enthusiasm. It comes from like, I love this. I just don't want to leave. And then it becomes, you're punished if you leave. You're punished if you take care of your basic human needs. And because everybody's basic human needs are a little different and people want to belong, right? So they don't want to fly in the face of that and look bad. So they sacrifice themselves and kill themselves and burn themselves out. And the industry's losing incredible talent. It's losing its depth. You know, in terms of its players, you know, on the field, they're losing depth because they're sacrificing them. You'd never do that to a sports team. And acting in the beginning, actors, if it weren't for those actors that took that stand in the early 20th century to unionize, I couldn't do this for a living. And I have definitely seen a downward pressure on wages and what's getting negotiated for us as actors. And we're not we're not walking a cakewalk because 
you know, it looks like we get paid a lot of money for a little time. But when we're paid, we're paid not just for the time we're there in that booth or there on that set. We're being also paid for the hours and hours and hours that we put in to stay competitive, to keep our skills up. The theater we do for free, the classes we pay for and take, the training we do to stay dialed up like an athlete in the off season. That's what we're required to do to stay competitive. And if you don't, you're not competitive. The other thing that we're selling is our exposure. You can be the lead in a game only so many times, and then you got to go on the shelf for a while. I remember it was early 2000s, and I've been in this business long enough to know that sometimes you're in fashion and sometimes you're out of fashion, and you can't take either personally. And I happened to be in fashion in the commercial world. I literally could not turn on the TV or radio at the time without hearing a commercial within a few minutes that I was on. It was bananas. I was like, wow, this is crazy. But I knew enough to know I need to save my money. I said it out loud. I said, I'm going to be on the shelf for, I don't know, six, six and a half years. And I was on the shelf for about six, six and a half years. Like that's how it rolls. And so when you're the lead in a bunch of games, you better save your money because they're going to want a so-and-so type, someone like you, not you, because that's too much associated with all that other stuff. So you have, to, you have to have enough money to save to go on the shelf and then go reinvent yourself as something else, as the villains or the character people, or just wait it out. That's part of what that compensation is for. And the devs, when they're in there, I mean, I, I don't I hesitate to even speak about it because I don't have the authority or, and I believe not the right because it's not my part of the circle, right? But from the outside, what I see is an enormous amount of talent that if they're going to jump in and burn themselves out for you, please compensate them in such a way that they can take a breather, gather themselves and come back and be in there for you again, bringing all those years of expertise and all that stuff that ultimately saves you money. Like when I walk in a booth, you put me in there against somebody who's done it for a couple of years, I'm going to save you time and money just because it's what I bring. Mm-hmm. I bring 37, 38 years of being in the booth into that booth and all my time as a human being and all my fascination with and time in the trenches as an actor and how I care about that. And I've examined it and played with it and been exposed to it and learned from my peers who are the most brilliant people on the planet. I would be nothing had I not been exposed to the, the peers that I work with. I wouldn't know a dang thing without them. Um, they're just, just watching them is like a masterclass every single time. But without putting in that time, I'm saving people money in that booth, on that stage, just because I bring all that to the party. And the devs, they have that. It's heartbreaking to see that jeopardized in that way. One of the things that really frustrates me when I talk about unionization, because I come from journalism, and so I, I've been following a lot of newsrooms have been unionizing lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, some very high profile newsrooms that are probably they're pretty well compensated. And a lot of people think that unionization is just about money. And you made a great case for for why money is important. And, you know, everybody thinks because you're an actor, you're, you know, lounging poolside right now in Beverly Hills. And, and <laughs> I don't know those people. Where are they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so there is an economic case to be made, but I, I there's there's more to it than that. You know, I think one of the first arguments yeah. I hear when people talk about the gaming industry is, oh, they're they're really well paid. So the churn and burn thing is is, is accounted for oh. in their high paychecks. And is there anything you can say, maybe not specifically, because you explained why you can't talk directly for the devs, but why why it's not just about a, a paycheck, a number on a paycheck. Well, I always go to the meta, honestly. For me, it's about the society and the world you want to live in. Unions exist because greed exists. 
as long as there is greed, we have to have a balancing element. And granted, unions can become greedy and anything can become greedy and corrupt. But right now, this country, this world, this society, the greatest ill we have is not it's not divisiveness. Divisiveness is a symptom to me. The greatest ill we have, the greatest problem we have is not unions versus not unions or haves versus it's greed. It's corporate greed and corruption. And you've got a very few people gathering a lot of the wealth at the top. And until we can change the part of human nature that makes that not happen anymore, we need protections and unions are protections. Do we want to live in a world where we take care of each other or where we cut each other's throats? One other aspect to this that I think about sometimes too is, right, you know, if you don't have the union protections as a member of the Screenwriters and Actors Guild, then I don't get Jennifer Hale and Commander Shepard or or as Samus or as Bastila or in all of these awesome, you know, characters that I've grown up with and, you know, have been a, a huge part of my life. I don't get that product as a consumer too. And so unionization actually not just being about pay or even work conditions. It's actually about making a better product, making something that the consumers want. What that brings to mind for me is art is about the elevation of our souls and ourselves. We find inspiration there. We find things that lift us up in that way we can't quantify. And the quantified life is not the only life. I mean, that's this whole thing about the 1980s and, you know, the numbers, the numbers. I mean, this BS that we live in, I'm going to have to sidetrack for a sec because it makes me bananas. And this is probably the only podcast that will really be, <laughs> you guys will get it. What the hell is this metric about the measure of the stock market is the measure of the health of a society. Yeah. What is that? Mm-hmm. And that same dismissiveness ties into, I think, what you were just saying, which is we need this art. We need this, our souls elevated. And, and you can't, unions and things like that protect and create a structure within which that can happen with less, far less abuse. I mean, there's, God, there's also safety issues. I mean, I was on a mocap set yesterday and hearing horror stories about, you know, a a set where, because you you have non-union stuff going on there, you've got people's lives in danger, you know, people's career, permanent injuries and things like that going on. Could you talk about why do you do this work? What, what is it about the work that, that really, uh, appeals to you? I love it. I, oh my God, I'm getting all choked up. (laughs) (laughs) These people I work with, these stories we get to tell, these moments we get to have, like I get to immerse myself in being somebody who actually saved the universe, depending on which ending you pick. I know, like I've wanted to do that since I was four and I actually get to do it. It's pretend, but I don't care. I get to do it, you know? I get to disappear into another human being for a few hours and I don't exist. And that is the greatest gift in the world. Um, I get to take these stories of these writers who are just, ah, they're just such gifts and hopefully bring them to life in a way that that writer envisioned. And if we're lucky, we get to happen upon something more. I get to surrender to the flow and the muse and disappear myself into something so much bigger than me. Thank you for, for being so generous with your time and, and, uh, oh. and your experiences. I, I, we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm such a fan of what you're doing. I really, really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. This is so cool. <laughs> You've totally you made bet. his year. Anytime. I think you have made my year. It's, it's actually totally true. Anytime I'm here, at the end I'll say, Take I care. should go. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Bye.
So here's somebody with personal experience in the gaming industry as an independent game developer who asked not to be identified because they are also on the front lines of the unionization efforts as an organizer for Game Workers Unite. So my role in game making is as a programmer. Um, I spend most of my time working with designers. They'll say, we want the game to work like this. I'll write out the code to actually make it work like that. But a lot of my day-to-day -day is back and forth uh, with designers and artists trying to collaborate on getting the game into a good state. Um, so I'm rarely working on my own. Game companies can range in size from a single person to hundreds or maybe even over a thousand people, something that makes games really hard to kind of plan out normally. The first thing that most people think about the game industry, the first thing I always hear is, oh, so you get to play games all day. And as fun as that would be, that's unfortunately not the case. I mean, everybody's very excited about what they're doing. We all feel very lucky to be there, but that passion isn't endless. You know, at the end of the day, it's a job. Um, and while we are working on video games and that is really cool, it's still our, well, nine to five charitably, but more often than not, not nine to five. And a lot of times people are working on projects because they're really excited about it, but those lines start to blur when You've got tons of people on a project and you're working on tight deadlines. And then, I mean, maybe people are choosing to work longer on projects, but there could be a lot of other pressures involved in that. So that passion isn't endless. Something that makes that difficult is, I forget where I heard this, but I once heard game development described as making a movie while you're building the camera, um, and that it's a very chaotic process. Uh, organization and structuring is kind of one of our weakest points. So there are a lot of studios making big strides in that area. So the game industry has never been too great on working conditions. It started out as this kind of romanticized idea of like kids in their parents' garages coding stuff out. It didn't really have a very industrial feel to it. So that working habit of if we misjudged how, this, how long this feature is going to take to make, we can just sleep in the office, you know, work nights and weekends. But as that adopted into a corporate culture, we never really fixed that problem. We never really established regular working hours. Um, so there's always been a problem. But more recently, a lot more of that stuff has been coming to light. Uh, reporting teams like the ones at Kotaku have been doing really in-depth pieces exposing how bad some of the hours and working conditions are. And those are really big. Like when those big articles come out, everybody's talking about that around the office. And that's been really huge just for increasing awareness and increasing the conversation. But it's also made the public more aware of it. And that's made people more comfortable talking about these openly. You know, it was always kind of an open secret, but now it's, it's not even a secret anymore. Like you can read about this in the New York Times. So now that everybody's talking about it and these conditions are out in the open and people are discussing it, we have more of a chance to make big strides towards unionizing. Unionizing, or at the very least improving labor standards, I think is very necessary for the continued health of the industry because people are burning out left and right. It's very rare for people to stay in the industry more than 10 years. And that means that we don't have a lot of ex like really experienced people in the industry. Um, and that means you, like people keep making rookie mistakes. Burnout makes people worse at their job. You know, when I've been working an 80 hour week and, you know, I, I'm not going to be at my full capacity anymore. I'm not, I'm, I'll be making silly mistakes. And I think that overall this does make the workplace, but also the products we make worse. 
So there are a lot of things keeping unionization from going forward, things that we're working on addressing. One of the major ones is that if you're already overworked, you're probably not going to have a lot of free time to go to union meetings. We're doing good work, but it is work. And a lot of people do not have the emotional energy for that, uh, especially after working in an industry where the conditions aren't that great. Another barrier that we get from people is just kind of a general fear of unionism as a concept. It's why most of the time when we're talking to people, we don't say, would you like to form a union? We say, man, this thing that's happening sucks. We should do something about this. We should talk to other people about it. We should try and get our coworkers together. But I think the core of it really is that people have this idea that this is a passion-based industry and we don't really need worker protections because we're all very excited to be here. And we all are. You know, we're making video games. It's a dream job. And that means that people are hesitant to invest time and effort in something that they feel could make it less exciting to work on. Ultimately, the message that we've been trying to push is that better labor makes for better games. That idea that the poor labor standards don't affect you personally is something that's pretty pervasive, you know, culturally. Like, I, and, or, you know, thinking about where our clothes come from is already pretty uncomfortable, and most people have learned to deal with that cognitive dissonance and not really do anything about it. From an empathetic perspective, you should probably care about how the things you buy get made, and we need to treat our workers with dignity and respect. As of a couple of years ago, the video game industry has about 65,000 employees. That's not the largest sector of the economy, but it's still a pretty substantial one. And a lot of these jobs are very similar to technology jobs, especially for programmers like myself. And how we define what the labor practices of these new industries like video games and technology are going to look like is going to be really important going forward as more and more technology-focused jobs emerge. Basically, these are sectors of the economy that aren't unionized, and as a result, they often get the most exploited. I think if we figure this out now, that's really important because it only gets harder the longer they go with these unfair practices, the longer they go treating their workers like they don't matter. So there you go. This isn't just about morality. This is about economics as well. When an industry is able to invest in their labor, their products will be better and they'll make more money. When we all do better, we all do better. Go to GameWorkersUnite.org, click that Get Involved button, and support the unionization efforts. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.